On this day, I climbed a tall cherry tree at the back of the barn, and as I looked toward the fields at the east, I imagined how wonderful it would be to make some device which had even the possibility of ascending to Mars, and how it would look on a small scale if sent up from the meadow at my feet. I have several photographs of the tree taken since, with a little ladder I made to climb it, leaning against it. It seemed to me then that a weight whirling around a horizontal shaft, moving more rapidly above than below, could furnish lift by virtue of the greater centrifugal force at the top of the path. I was a different boy when I descended the tree from when I ascended. Existence at last seemed very purposive. an awesome quote hannah who said that thanks anna i found that while reading about robert goddard and it was a quote from one of his journals wow i assumed it was an original (laughs) (laughs) yeah some of the language in there it's like it's definitely from a long time ago (laughs) i thought it was really neat yeah great job reading it thank you yeah i thought it was super neat so i thought it'd be a really cool intro quote it's from when he was 17 years old and he had climbed up a tree to cut off some dead branches. And this was in 1899. And he just became fascinated by the beautiful sky that day. And ever since then, that like fascination inspired him to study aerospace and pursue rocketry. And ever since that moment, he actually celebrated the anniversary of that day and he called it anniversary day every year um wow yeah so that was a super important day for him i don't know when my anniversary day of getting into aerospace would be yeah like me neither yeah i don't know yeah i don't know my Uh, dad works in space because i so i always kind of thought space was cool yeah but yeah robert goddard is one of our fathers of rocketry And And that is what we're going to talk about today. Exactly. So we're going to be talking about the fathers of rocketry. There's three of them, Goddard, Solkowski, and Oberth. Yeah, we're going to go into each one a little bit. I think it'll be a cool episode. Yeah. But before we dive in, Anna, how are you doing? I am okay. I have nothing to complain about. As much as I would love to go outside and hang out with friends again, I really have nothing to complain about in my current situation. How about you, Hannah? Yeah, same. I'm like super grateful for the fact that, you know, we are in engineering and we can work from home and our jobs aren't being impacted by everything going on. Um, And we're really grateful to all the essential workers out there. Yes, definitely. Very grateful. And then also on that note, so we have had to record the last couple of episodes remotely. So we're still trying to iron out the kinks in that. So I'm sorry. Last episode, my sound was a little bit echoey. So I've moved into my bedroom, so I'm hoping that will help. I think it's going to help a bunch because I think... I am on the floor in my bedroom, and if you... (laughs) I have a small room, so there's not a ton of floor. (laughs) (laughs) But hopefully it'll, it'll, like, absorb all that ambient noise from the street. (laughs) It's for the greater good, yes. And then the other thing is, like, I can't even close my... I have no bedroom door. (laughs) So it's not even like I can close the door and try to help. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Same. I don't have a bedroom door either. Small apartments. Yes. Yes. But you have you have carpet in the main part in your like living room area. Yeah. And I think that absorbs a lot of the sound. I think it helps a lot. Yeah. It sounds better in the sound test. So thanks for sticking with us. Thank you. How are you, Hannah? I'm doing good. Yeah. Can't complain, really. I did realize that when I get into my car now, I realize that since I'm not driving around as much anymore, I'm not learning about all the new music that I usually figure out through the radio not a huge problem to have but i just thought it was really funny especially today i was driving around i was like what is this song wait what is this other song (laughs) i'm probably super out of date with how popular music because i haven't listened you're right it didn't even occur to me i haven't listened to the radio in a long time yeah i haven't needed to i haven't been in my car and that's the only place i listen to the radio yeah yeah exactly (laughs) i was talking to my dad my dad's like do you even know if your car is still there I was like, yeah, I should probably go check that. Yeah. It was still there, in case you're wondering. And it did start up. I took it for a drive around the block. I actually got a parking <laughs> ticket. <laughs> no! 
Oh man, that's awful. Yeah, I totally forgot. I like left it for so for a couple days, and then I realized I was like, oh my gosh, I should actually move it. You're because not allowed to park on the street yeah, for more than like 24 hours or something. Exactly. Yeah, it was day two or day three. And I went out and I got a parking ticket. I was like, oh, no. No. Yeah. That's silly because then you're just going to have people get out and move their cars to a new spot. Exactly. But honestly, it's like my bad. I pay for a parking spot and I should have got parked my car there, but I wanted to but park the right. But you probably got a good street park spot that day. Exactly. I and it was just it. like made it really easy for me to walk all my groceries in to my apartment right away instead of walking them I get from it. a yeah. couple blocks away. It's not a short walk for you. I mean, it's not far, but it's not short. It involves some stairs. Thanks, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are you ready to start getting into this? Yes, I am so ready. Let's do this. So Robert Goddard, I'm going to go ahead and we're going to go back in time and start with young Robert. So Robert Goddard was born in Worcester, Massachusetts. Rob, and if you will. Rob, if you will, yes. So young Robbie Rob was born in Worcester, Massachusetts in 1882. And he grew up with this fascination for science and technology that was consistently encouraged by his dad. So his dad was definitely a huge cheerleader in his life for science and technology. His dad got him a telescope and a microscope and a subscription to Scientific American. And he went hard. Oh, yeah. He was like <laughs> <laughs> He's like, Mike is excited about about science. Let's just throw all the science things at him. <laughs> That's really sweet. It was really sweet. Um, and I when I read this that he got him a subscription to Scientific American, my first thought was like, what? Was Scientific American really around back then? Yeah, it still exists. Yeah, it still exists, and it's a popular magazine. So I looked up how old this magazine was, and Scientific American was around back then. I didn't realize that, but it has been around since 1845, and Albert Einstein actually contributed to it. So I thought that was really cool. Wow, that is really cool. Yeah. So anyways, he was super excited. Young Rob was super excited about space and science, And it sounds like he had this easy breezy path to, you know, getting into space and rocketry just by his fascination of it. But actually, he didn't have the easiest time growing up. He wasn't the healthiest. He actually suffered from several lung and stomach issues. And because of these health problems, it set him back by two years. Oh, my God. Like in school? In school. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. And, like, now I think about it, it's like, oh, when I was in grade school and I would think about people being set back a year or two, it's like there's this, you know, there's this almost, like, stigma against them. Like, oh, when are they going to catch up? Are they going to catch up? Which is absolutely unfair. But Completely. Completely. There are so many reasons why somebody could be held back. And I think this is a really good point that it doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily just mean they're not smart. Exactly. Yeah, it doesn't mean that they're not smart. You never know what could could be happening in their lives. But, yeah, God... Yeah. Goddard really exemplified, like, you know, just because he was set back didn't mean that this would impact his amazing contributions later in life. Perseverance. Perseverance. (laughs) So despite his health issues, he was a voracious reader. His curiosity for knowledge pushed him to read and read whatever he could at the library. And by about 18 to 19 years old, he had actually finished reading Sam Langley's research papers about the aerodynamics surrounding birds, as well as Newton's Principia Mathematica. So for those of you who don't know, Newton's Principia Mathematica is like his Bible for the laws of motion. It's Newton's laws. Exactly. Newton's laws. So it's every force, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Exactly. So it's Newton's most important contribution to our human knowledge base. It covers Newton's laws of motion, like Anna just said. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Um, It talks about the law of universal gravitation. And if anyone is interested, I would highly recommend go Google it. The PDF is out there of his original text. But if you really want to learn about Newton's laws of motion, I would also recommend looking up Feynman's lectures. So this is just a quick aside, but... Richard Feynman was a Caltech physicist, and he's known as a really, really great lecturer, and he's known for simplifying these really complex topics, and he's actually known as the great explainer um, for how well he explains stuff. But yeah, would recommend. But going back to Goddard, so 
Goddard eventually enrolled into the Worcester Polytechnic Institute in 1904, and at WPI, he started experimenting with rocket propulsion in the physics buildings. And in 1907, he got caught up in an explosion of smoke um, that came out of one of those poor buildings because of one of his experiments. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. Poor Rob. And it's a good thing the school administration didn't expel him. They were actually encouraging of his um, fascination with rocket experiments. So they let him continue his research. And wow. Yeah. That is very understanding of them. It's a very nice, yeah, very understanding administration. So he went on and continued his research um, and experiments with solid and liquid rocket fuels. So only seven years after his experimental explosion at that physics building, he had collected two patents in 1914. The first patent was for a rocket utilizing liquid rocket fuel. And this was a huge deal because this had never been done before. And I'm going to get into a bit more detail about why this is so important in a little bit. And the second patent was for multi-stage rockets using solid rocket fuel. And this, again, had never been detailed before, so he received a patent for it. And by 1926, he had successfully built and tested the first rocket to use liquid fuel. So in... Whoa! Yeah, super cool. Super, super cool. In 1914, he had detailed this type of rocket, but in 1926, he had actually built and tested it. And this was huge. That flight of the rocket lasted less than three seconds, and the rocket reached an altitude of 12.5 meters, or 41 feet. But the really amazing feat was the fact that he had used liquid fuel, which had never been used before. And um, the reason why liquid rocket motors are so cool is that a liquid-fueled rocket can actually be stopped and restarted, but you can't do that with a solid rocket motor. And the reason is, is because the way that solid rocket motors would work was that you would pack gunpowder into a tiny cartridge and then you would light that cartridge and the rocket would go as far as that gunpowder would burn up in that cartridge. So once that, uh, once that cartridge was empty of gunpowder and once that entire pellet of gunpowder had burned up, your rocket would stop flying. Solid-fueled rockets have been around for a really long time. They actually date back to 1264. I went on a little hunt to find out when the earliest (laughs) one was, and I found that it was actually uh, the first solid rocket was used in 1264 in China when it was used to launch a rat to scare the emperor's mother at a feast, and I thought that was pretty funny. (laughs) But yeah. It is funny. I like how they were like, this is what we're going to use this for. That was dangerous. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but now we use this technology to launch people to the moon and stuff. Yes. Super cool. Um, what I always think of is like if you have a candle and you light a candle, once the candle burns out, you can't add more to the candle. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually a beautiful visual. Exactly. Thank you. Thank once you. that candle wax is done, just like that solid rocket fuel is done, um, your rocket stops, your candle stops. Exactly. Yep. So, also something that was really cool about this test flight, Goddard's first liquid fuel test flight, was that his liquid fuel rocket utilized a nozzle. And it's the first time a nozzle was utilized by rockets. A nozzle had been used in steam turbines before, but it was the first time anyone had thought to apply it to a rocket. So, the way a nozzle works is that it accelerates the flow of gases. So in one of our older episodes, Anna brought up a really great example. And she brought up this visual of, you know, think about taking a hose, a watering hose. And when you pinch it and cover up part of the opening of the hose, that water that's exiting will burst out at a higher velocity. So the way you think about a nozzle is that you're basically, there's a point in that nozzle, a throat, that is accelerating the speed of the gases that are coming out of it. So another really cool engineering design that Robert Goddard had implemented in this first test of a liquid-fueled rocket was that he was running really cold locks through pipes that he had wound around the combustion chamber that occurs before the nozzle. 
And what was really cool about this was that the cold locks running through these pipes surrounding the combustion nozzle, I mean, the combustion chamber, cooled down that combustion chamber and kept it from exploding. And this was really cool because it also meant that we lost less, it also meant that he lost less energy in the form of heat in the rocket. And this is still a fundamental design practice that is implemented in today's rocket engineering. Wow. Yeah. I was going to say, we still do that. Yeah, we still do that. Like when I read about rocket designs, we still do that. And I think it's super cool that this came from, this dates back to 1926. So prior to this launch, he actually documented his understanding of the math behind rocket propulsion in a super dense text that he authored. And I actually found the original copy of this text. It's titled A Method of Reaching Extreme Altitudes. And you That's can find- That's a good name. It's a really good name. And you can find this text online for free. Um, I found the PDF and I started reading through it. And in it, he talks about how he can send weather atmospheric measurement instruments higher than weather balloons could back then, which was about 20 miles above the ground. And in this, um, in this text, he explores parameters of efficiency uh, and he also explores like what velocities the expelled gas would have to achieve to propel the mass of the instrument to greater altitudes. He also talks about utilizing nozzles and uh, different uh, nozzle designs to increase the efficiencies of the rocket that he was designing. And near the end of his document, he wrote, I found this quote in his document and I thought it was super cool. He writes, quote, from these experiments, it is seen that if this flash powder were exploded on the surface of the moon, distant 220,000 miles, and a telescope of one foot aperture were used, the exit pupil being not greater than the pupil of the eye, we should need a mass of flash powder of 2.67 pounds to be just visible and 13.82 pounds to be strikingly visible. Okay, 2.67 pounds of, I'm assuming flash powder is gunpowder, is a lot of gunpowder. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of gunpowder. Wow. I just, That's neat. I just thought it was a really cool quote that he was, like, thinking that is about. a good quote. What? What we would be able to see from the moon. Yeah, like, with the naked eye, what, or with a telescope, um, using a telescope. It all goes back to his dad buying him that telescope. Exactly. Isn't that fascinating? I thought that was really cool. <laughs> I thought that was good. And then also he says we need 13.8 pounds um, of gunpowder for an explosion on the moon to be strikingly visible. And I'm like, that's a um, lot of gunpowder. Gun also, how do you define strikingly visible? Like a giant firework yeah. on the moon? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What's the difference between visible and strikingly visible? Like one of them you have to struggle to see and the other one is obvious? I don't know. Yeah, like am I squinting my eyes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't don't try that. Um. In response to this paper that he wrote, the New York Times in 1920 published an article where the author thought this was absolutely preposterous, that what Robert Goddard had wrote was could, could not be achieved. And what's interesting is that the author back then firmly believed that the rocket's exhaust needed, it had to have air resistance to push against in order for the rocket to go forward. And so basically the author in this New York Times article posted, he said, how could a rocket move forward when there's no air resistance in space to push against? That's so crazy that that was published in 1920 because that's not really all that long ago. Right. It's not all that long ago. But also it was, this was probably the thinking of this one author and, you know, like, a lot of research hadn't been put in for uh, no. how rockets fly and how they can fly through uh, through a vacuum. Exactly. Yeah. But I thought that was really interesting. But anyway, that was interesting too. Come on, New York Times. Come on, New York Times. <laughs> but so Robert Goddard continued his research and experiments uh, with liquid-fueled rockets. And he actually hit a bunch of firsts in the 1920s and the 1930s. So in 1929, he was first to launch a payload composed of a barometer and a camera in a rocket flight. 
Three years after that, he was first to use veins in the path of the rocket exhaust. So basically what veins are is that they're these little structures, these flat structures that look like, that kind of look like fins, but they're in the path of the exhaust and he could then control them to navigate the direction of the rocket. In 1932, he, that same year that he came up with veins to direct flight, he was also the first to develop a gyroscopic control mechanism for rocket stability. And a gyroscope is this contraption of a spinning wheel surrounded by frames, and it uses the conservation of angular momentum to maintain the orientation of the system. And this is really complicated to explain over a podcast. And I would super recommend checking out YouTube videos of gyroscopes to truly understand how they work. Have you ever seen those like no spill bowls for kids? Where it's like when you move the bowl, the bowl still stays yes. upright? Yes, yes, That's kind of like a very, very simplified version of this idea. Yes. But I would still look it up I, if I were you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would recommend looking it up. It took me like a while to understand it in my physics lectures, and I had to watch a couple of videos of gyroscopes um, to truly understand it. But yeah, it's really impressive that he figured that out. It's really impressive, and it really helps to have visuals to understand what was happening for that. Very much so. But this is the fact that he utilized a gyroscope was huge. The Germans actually implemented this in their own V-2 rocket just 10 years after he figured this out. Wow. Yeah. And you can actually find the patent for his gyroscopic control design. Uh, I'll have it linked in the sources. And you can see the original drawings for his gyroscope in that patent. Super neat. So anyway, continuing on with this first. In 1935, he was first to launch a liquid propellant rocket that had obtained a speed greater than the speed of sound, and that's 700 miles per hour, or 312.9 meters per second. Wow. Super fast. Yeah. Super fast. And then in 1937, he launched a liquid rocket with a steering system, and it went up uh, 2.73 kilometers and lasted 22 seconds. So this is really cool, because his first rocket, the flight lasted less than three seconds. And then this rocket in 1937 um, flew up for 22 seconds. That is impressive. Yeah, super impressive. Over the next couple of years after that rocket launch, Goddard actually became sick. And the first to notice it, the first to notice it was his wife, Esther, who has actually played a very critical role in his story as an engineer. So we're going to rewind a bit and talk a bit about Esther. And I really want to talk about her because she's just a fierce woman who, you know, who shared this beautiful partnership with Goddard. So Esther... Bring it on. I want to learn about her too. Wonderful. So Esther and Goddard met each other in 1919, and that started their beautiful partnership. And in the articles that I found about her, she was known to be a fierce supporter of Goddard. She supported him thoroughly through his liquid rocket experiments. She would document his work by taking pictures. She would uh, take notes. She would uh, sew the parachutes for his launches. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Super dedicated. And she would even put out the brush fires that started from his launches. Wow. That is love. That is true love. <laughs> wow. And basically, they shared in this adventure of rocketry together. That's so beautiful. So beautiful. And so, unfortunately, in 1941, she started noticing a difference in his voice, and it was an indication of the development of his throat cancer that killed him. Oh, man. Yeah, that killed him in 1945. That's so sad. So sad. And after his death, she was fierce to get him the credit that he deserved for all of his work, because apparently people were beginning to copy his inventions. She was like, oh, heck no. (laughs) (laughs) Good for her. Yeah. So she worked with a patent attorney. And because of her, he ended up with 214 patents, of which 131 were awarded after his death because of Esther's hard work. So that's more than half. Yeah, more than half. Isn't that absolutely wonderful? 
That's so lovely. So beautiful. Basically, in summary, Goddard had this beautiful, rich life and rocketry contributions. And actually, going back to that New York Times article that called him out and said that he couldn't get a rocket to fly through space, 24 years after his death in 1969, the, Euro the New York Times corrected itself and it said it regretted their error in assuming Goddard's claims being false. Wow. I wonder if that aligns with uh, the Apollo 11. Yeah. Actually, Anna, it did. It was a couple days. Oh. I think I remember reading it was a couple days before Apollo 11. Well, they're like, we're about to bring people to the moon, so we should probably uh, correct ourselves. <laughs> correct ourselves. <laughs> Maintain our reputation. Fix our reputation. <laughs> all in all, like, Goddard was a badass. He proved... He was. He really was. He proved rockets can work in a vacuum. He launched the first liquid-fueled rocket. He got the first patent for a multi-stage rocket. He used vanes and gyros to stabilize and control rockets. Like, what the heck? These are incredible contributions, and... I'm just so happy I got to read and learn about this for this episode. Yeah, that's really neat. Yeah, super I didn't cool. realize he did that much, but I guess you have to do a lot to get an entire NASA Space Center named after you. Yeah, actually, though, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yes. And I'm super excited to learn about Solkowski some more. I'm excited to tell you about him, but first, I need to take a little break. Yeah, let's do it. Let's take a break. Are you ready to learn about Tsiolkovsky? I am always ready to learn from you, Anna. Let's go. <laughs> so starting out with a quote, not quite as grand of a quote, but Earth is the cradle of humanity, but one cannot remain in the cradle forever. Beautiful. I really liked it. I love it. So bringing it back to the beginning, Konstantin E. Tsiolkovsky was born on September 17th, 1857 in Izhevskoy, Russia. Is Ooh. Hevskoy? It looks looks good to me. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Thank you. So I this think is Anna's now... gonna have a lot of Russian terms to say in the next while. So I regretted this <laughs> almost immediately after I started researching this. I was like, this is gonna be rough. And then I tried to look up some of the pronunciations for them and I couldn't even understand. I was like, oh no. I very much do not speak Russian, but I'm trying my best. <laughs> But that is now the Spassky District in Ryazan Oblast. For anybody who's familiar with the geography of Russia. So, for context, because I had no idea what was going on in the year 1857, except it was before the Civil War, and it wasn't today. That's all I knew. So in the year 1857, the U.S. Supreme Court announced the ruling of Dred Scott versus Sanford case. This is a landmark case in the U.S. The Supreme Court ruled that African Americans were not citizens and slaves could not sue for freedom. This rightfully enraged abolitionists and further divided the North and the South. This contributed to the eventual succession of the Southern states from the Union and then the start of the Civil War in 1861. Just as a little bit to help you kind of get your historical footing, if you will, figure out where we were. So the U.S. Civil War was not happening yet, but rumblings were going down that's and really then, awesome to like set the scene that way it's like to create context of what else was happening i had to do it for me personally i am not proud to admit it but i am bad i know that th the things that happened in history but i'm bad at knowing what years in which they occurred yeah yeah however i do really like supreme court cases so this is an aside but any of you are also interested in supreme court cases there's a podcast out there called More Perfect. They haven't put out episodes in, I want to say, a year, but they have a large chunk of episodes that break down some of the landmark Supreme Court cases. So if you're interested, I would recommend you check that out. So they dive into just, like, more details about them? Yeah, exactly. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I can't believe... It's a believe... really cool podcast. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I'll have to check it out. I can't believe, like, back then, we're figuring out rockets about the same time African Americans were not seen as citizens. Like, what the heck? Yes, which is not okay. Yeah. yeah. It's just, I think it just kind of puts it in some more context. Like, while he was doing this, slavery was legal. Yeah, wow. In the U.S. It's really so insane. So awful. Yeah, it's crazy to think about. It is awful. All right, so hopping back to Solkowski, now that we all kind of have ourselves historically oriented... Solkowski was born into a middle-class family. His father, Makari Edward Ezram, 
So you'll look how's the account? Oh, no. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> I was doing so good. You were. You were 80% minutes. there. <laughs> Thank you. was originally from Poland, and he was a Polish noble by birth. He immigrated to Russia. I couldn't find the year. It doesn't really matter. Um, and his father initially worked as a provincial forestry official. Not initially. His father worked as a provincial forestry official. Whatever that means. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. I actually, in the first article I was reading, they did not mention his mother's name. And I was like, hey, that's not okay. So I had to go search for his mother's names. But Heck Encyclopedia yeah. Britannica had it. Nice. So his mother's name was Maria Ivanovna Yumasheva and was Russian in Tater. I didn't know what Tater was. It is a Turkic, Turkic, it is a Turkic ethnic group who mostly resides in Tartarstan and the Volga Ural region. Tartarstan is a federal subject of the Russian Federation, so it's just essentially it's located in Russia. And Volga Ural is a historical region in Eastern Europe located in modern day Russia. I learned wow. a lot in this episode. Yeah, I definitely did not know what Tater was and did not know about these regions. Very interesting. I didn't either. Learned a lot. Learned a lot. Back to what we're actually all here to know about. So at age 10, Solkovsky caught scarlet fever and became hard of hearing. So scarlet fever is what Beth caught in Little Women. Hmm. So if that sounds familiar to you. Interestingly enough, Little Women did take place just about the same time as Solkovsky's life. So those two things also occurred in the same time period. Well, Little Women isn't real, but Little Women was set in the same time period in which Sokoski was alive. Oh, interesting. I did not know it was set back then. Yep. Uh, It's a great... The new movie that just came out in December is really beautiful, if any of you are interested. Ooh, I haven't seen that. I should watch it. It's good. You should watch it. It's um, The director, Greta Gerwig, is really wonderful. She did Lady Bird. Didn't you tell me your dad wanted to watch that? Yes, he did. That is why we went to go see it at the movie theater. (laughs) That's awesome. My dad over Christmas is like, I want to go see Little Women. And I was like, really? I don't know. I read the book a long time ago. Like, I, there's so many yeah. Little Women movies. My dad's like, I heard this one was really, really good. And he was right. It was beautiful. I'll have to go see it. I very highly recommend. Also, Timothy Chalamet is in it. Who's that very famous young actor. And he's very good. They're all Wait. great, but back to the point. Back to the point. Who are we talking about again? <laughs> Sokovsky, I know. You're all like, please get to what you're supposed to talk about. We barely even made it to his teens. <laughs> I think it's all interesting. I thought so, too. I appreciate it. Oh. All right, so at the age of 13, and very unfortunately, his mother died. And because he was oh. hard of hearing, the elementary school would not admit him. So as a result, he was homeschooled and mostly self-taught. He passed the majority of his time by reading and became interested in math and physics. And it was during his teenage years that he began to ponder the possibility of space travel. So his family recognized his aptitude and desire to learn, and they sent him to a Moscow library. It talks about how he attended lectures at this Moscow library, so I'm assuming this is a college of some sort, but I don't know. I could not figure it out. Oh, yeah, that is interesting. I mean, that, yeah. kind of, that makes sense to me. Um, yeah, I think so, too. Yeah, and also it's an interesting parallel here how you talk about how he had to be homeschooled and because that he of, also had health problems. Yes, he had health problems, but was also a huge reader. Same thing with Goddard; yes. he had health problems, and he passed the time by reading and reading. Exactly, I think it just reading is really wonderful. I also just think it speaks to the internal drive and just love of learning of these two men. Yeah, the curiosity that they had. Exactly, and how far that can push you. Mm-hmm. So, Sokovsky stayed in Moscow for three years, where he studied chemistry, mathematics, astronomy, and mechanics. He attended lectures with the aid of an ear horn, or it's sometimes called an ear trumpet. If you've never seen one of these, it literally just looks like a trumpet that you put in your ear, and it's a very, very old version of a hearing aid. Wow. So, it essentially just amplifies the sound. So, you'd have to hold it up to your ear, and it was a big thing. Oh, my gosh. So, that couldn't have been easy. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, imagine trying to take notes with one hand and then holding an ear horn with the other. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Please Google a picture. They are very impressive. All right. So, at the age of 19, Sokovsky returned home because his father wanted him to be financially independent, the hope of most parents out there, and his father was worried that he was just going to spend all his time studying math and physics and not actually learn a practical skill. 
So Solkowski returned home, and he passed the required examinations to become a teacher. And he was assigned to a school in Brovsk, which is about 60 miles outside of Moscow, where he married a woman named Bavara Yevgrafnovna Sokolovaya. And it was while teaching, Stokowski still fed his love of science, even though he was isolated from any science center. Even because of that, he began making scientific discoveries on his own. Wow. I know. So between the years 1880 to 1881, Solkovsky derived the equations for the kinetic theory of gases. He then sent the manuscript to the Russian Physio-Chemical Society in St. Petersburg, often referred to as the RSC. He was informed by Dmitry Ivanovich Mendeleev that it had already been discovered 25 years earlier. If Mendeleev sounds familiar to you, it's because he created the periodic classification of elements. So he is the man who created the periodic table. Also a big figure in science. Yeah. As a side note, the kinetic theory of gases was discovered. I put that in quotation marks because I don't know if it's discovered or derived or created. It's kind of hard because they've technically always existed. So I guess discovered is right. Yeah, like he discovered the concept. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Detailed out the concept of it, maybe. Exactly. Yeah, I never know what word to use, but we're going to use this discovered by Scottish scientist James Clerk Maxwell and Australian physicist Ludwig Boltzmann. Mm-hmm. Both have made numerous contributions to science. So if their names sound familiar to you, that is why. Um, and these include Maxwell's equations and Boltzmann's constants. They did Boltzmann's constant. There's only one. They both did a lot of other stuff. These are the two most common. So uh, Maxwell's equations are the like the fundamental equations that describe electricity and magnetism. If you take any sort of, if you go into any sort of engineering major, you're going to learn about them in your physics classes and in any elementary circuit classes that you take. Um, and then Boltzmann's constant is a parameter that describes kinetic energy to temperature. So I think yes. the the units exactly. are joules to kelvin so it describes like the you'll use it in any sort of heat transfer equations you'll use it for uh figuring out how energy is transferred through radiation on a spacecraft so both of these are really really important for engineering maxwell's and Boltzmann. they are they've made other contributions too those are just the two major ones i could think of yeah so Sokovsky was not deterred and with encouragement from mendelev he continued his research Mendeleev was impressed with Solkovsky, and as a result, Solkovsky was invited to be a member of the Russian Physiochemical Society. Then, in 1892, Solkovsky was moved to a teaching position in Kaluga. During this time, he began working on what would become his obsession over the next couple of years, building an all-metal dirigible. According to Wikipedia, I had no idea what a dirigible was. I, I have no idea. idea what that word is. <laughs> so the quote directly from the Wikipedia website is, A dirigible is an airship, airships which have a very thin airtight metal envelope rather than the usual fabric envelope. I'm pretty sure it's an all-metal blimp. That's nuts. Like, I can't yes. imagine seeing an all-metal blimp. Yes. Looking at pictures and from the description, I, th- I think that's gotta, what it's got to be. So apparently wow. a, a blimp is a dirigible, is the actual word. It's a wonder we don't use that. It's kind of a mouthful. Wow, I'm yes. learning all sorts of things here. I'm learning geography. I'm learning vocabulary. <laughs> it's amazing. all inclusive. <laughs> so Solkovsky developed the first aerodynamic laboratory in Russia in his apartment. In oh, 1897, wow. he built the first Russian wind tunnel. Yeah, I'm, I'm, at, I'm assuming he has a bigger apartment than I do, but I'm <laughs> imagining trying to get like an aerodynamic laboratory in here and it's not happening. I can't even have a queen size bed. <laughs> we'd have to make a doll dollhouse sized wind tunnel in your apartment. There's yeah, no or we'd way have to like it knock it. <laughs> I don't think anybody lives in the apartment next to me, so I guess we could knock down that wall and see if my <laughs> building ever notices. Yeah, <sighs> would have to be a wind tunnel for ants. Yeah, <laughs> yes. So, so Koski developed a method of experimentation using his wind tunnel. And in 1900, with a grant from the Academy of Sciences, he used the wind tunnel to determine the drag coefficients for spheres, flat, plates, cylinders, cones, and even some other shapes. I did not know that Sokovsky was responsible for drag coefficients. Thank you, Sokovsky. So Sokovsky's work inspired another Russian scientist, Nikolai Sukovsky. 
He went on to become the father of modern aerodynamics and hydrodynamics. So cool. just really spreading the, spreading the love. Oh, yeah. Inspiring spreading the inspiration. Everyone. I know. So Solkowski also did a variety of other work, but we're going to jump ahead to his work with rockets. He did a lot with the dirigible. We don't have time. We're just going to jump ahead. So Solkowski's most important paper, Exploration of Outer Space by Means of Rocket Devices, was published in 1903. In his paper, he derived what he called the Solkowski Equation, which described the relationship between a rocket's velocity, the velocity of its exhaust gases, and the initial and final rocket masses. If this sounds familiar to you, it's because it's the rocket equation. Yes. Super fundamental to any aerospace mechanical engineering class. Incredibly fundamental. And it's insane to me that he discovered this in 1903. Yeah. It's amazing. That's incredible. Yeah. So using this equation, Solkowski calculated that the minimum horizontal speed required for orbit around the Earth was 5 miles per second, or 8,000 meters per second. He then went even further than that. He went on to describe how this could be achieved using a multi-stage rocket that was fueled by liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. This really blew my mind because it was like, in the year 1903, 23 years before Goddard launched the first liquid rocket engine, he developed the idea for one. Like, he was like, this could be possible. Yeah, that's absolutely crazy that he did that i think the steam engine was still predominant around this time like that's insane to me yeah that he made that jump yeah that is really nuts and then also what i didn't mention in my section was that Goddard self-derived basically solkovsky's equation but of course later because solkovsky came up with it first but he did not know about solkovsky's equation rocket equation he actually derived it himself eventually yeah, um, so Sokowski and Goddard, I think, also did that. They had very similar discoveries. They also both, I think, mentioned... We talk about this in our electric propulsion episode, but Sokowski and Goddard kind of came up with the the initial idea for electric propulsion very close to around the same time, but very separately. Yeah, that's right. Which is really interesting. Super interesting. There's so many parallels. There are. There really are. It's it's nuts that they were both essentially on the other side of the world. It's possible, it's probable that they didn't even know about each other. Oh, yeah. Like, it's interesting to think, you know, that their work didn't feed off of each other. There were these parallel streams of knowledge coming out of them that was very similar. And, you know, it's like, what if, you know, one of them wasn't making these contributions and they were inspired to follow another path? It's interesting that this is like, there's redundancy here. And we would have still had those amazing contributions in understanding liquid and solid rockets. Yeah, it's also crazy to think if they had had the possibility to work together. Oh, yeah. Like, what like could have come out of that? Yeah, that is also a really interesting question. Yeah, I think it's easy to forget that the world seems small today. Like, we're recording this podcast over the internet, uh-huh. but it was not small a long time ago. Oh, yeah, definitely. Such a good point. Yes. So, Sokovsky essentially proved for the first time that a rocket could achieve spaceflight. And then the three-stage rocket design Solkowski describes in the paper became a basis for modern spaceflight design. At the time, the research was not appreciated by the scientific community. However, its validity had proven the test of time. So in 1911, he published a follow-up to his work, Exploration of Outer Space by Means of Rocket Devices. Solkowski evaluated the work needed to overcome the force of gravity. He determined the speed needed to propel the device into the solar system, We call that escape velocity now. And he examined the calculation of flight time. All pretty impressive. Something also interested to note is that this work was actually recognized by the scientific community. Thank goodness. Yes. Scientific community bashing everyone's dreams down. I know. I know. So he did get some recognition during his lifetime. Don't worry. Yes. Sokowski also conceived of a significant number of concepts which have been used in rocket designs, including gas rudders and regen cooling, both of which are still used today. Super cool. I know. There's a whole list, but I just couldn't list it all. He also did a significant amount of other work involving the theory of jet aircraft and combustible rocket fuels. I simply do not have time to go into all of it. And even he came up with the concept of electric propulsion. Really just the list goes on and on and on. Oh, yeah. On November 9th, 1921, the Council of the People's Commission granted him a pension for life in recognition of his services in both education and aviation. 
And unfortunately, he died on September 19th, 1935, at the age of 78 in Kaluga, the same place he moved after, essentially, the third place he had ever lived in his life. Or fourth, if you count Moscow. So, Sokovsky championed the idea of the diversity of life in the universe and was the first theorist and advocate of human spaceflight. Super cool. It really is impressive. His work inspired leading Soviet rocket engineers such as Sergei Korolev and Valentin Glushko, and overall, it contributed to the success. It contributed to the success of the Soviet space program, and thoroughly cemented his spot as one of the founding fathers of modern rocketry. Yay! How wonderful! Right, I thought he was really interesting. Oh yeah! Like, oh my gosh! I still can't get that image of like him holding an ear horn to understand lectures. And then at like re- 17 years old. At 17 years old. And then really yeah. taking away that knowledge from lectures and like. It's really impressive, yeah. It's just so impressive. It really is. All right, let's take a break. All right, everybody, we're back from our break. We're back. We are. You ready to hear about Oberth? Yeah, let's go, Anna. So Anna and I are going to be sharing the Oberth section, and we're super excited to get into his history. We are. He's interesting. He's got a little bit of a controversial past, if you will, but we're excited to talk about him. Yes, we'll definitely dive into that part as well. All right, Anna, do you want to go ahead and start it off for us? Yeah, let's do this. Awesome. All right, so to keep with the trend... We have a quote for our one and only Herman Julius Oberth. To make available for life every place where life is possible. To make inhabitable all worlds as yet uninhabitable. And all life purposeful. Beautiful. That's a pretty beautiful quote. I know. I don't know what his initial intent behind it was, but I like looking at it from a reflection now. I think it's really beautiful. Especially in our political climate today. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it can definitely be related. I don't know what his... His intent probably wasn't as broad uh, as we see it today, but I like to apply a very broad birth towards, like, just that last line, at all life purposeful. Yeah. It's very heavy. Um, it is. The To make inhabitable all worlds as yet uninhabitable. I feel like when we get into the section of when he publishes his papers and those the titles of those papers that'll make more sense but the all yeah. life purposeful that is that's interesting to me i'm like what is he referring is. to um i don't know yeah. yeah and i'm sure it was uh, i'm sure it was different than how we see it today yeah but. absolutely all right so herman julius oberth was born on june 25th 1894 in Hermannstadt, Austria-Hungary. So that's now Sibiu, Romania. So again, like I said, who doesn't love some historic context? I don't know what's going on in 1984. So in the U.S., Grover Cleveland was president, Coca-Cola was served in bottles for the first time, and on September 4th, in New York City, 12,000 tailors struck... I'm going to start that over. And on September 4th, in New York City, 12,000 tailors got together to strike against sweatshop working conditions. So the most interesting thing that I took from this was in this year, sweatshops were still legal in the United States. Wow. That's yes, crazy. Just to help you get your historical footing or orientation. Yeah. Yeah, Anna, I love that. I love the historical footing. Coca-Cola helps me. was served in a bottle for the first time. We go- Coca-Cola yeah. goes all the way back to 1894. It's really old. Yeah. Oh, wow. Actually, I was listening to, uh, I watched this YouTube channel of this guy named James Hoffman who talks about coffee. Apparently, he won the World Barista Championship one year. He's very interesting. But he's talking all about how, like, Coca-Cola is considered to be one of the most balanced flavors. What? Because if you drink Coca-Cola, do you know what is in Coca-Cola that makes that flavor? Um. Do you have any idea? I have no idea. Sugar? I, molasses? I, I don't either. Apparently it's a whole bunch of spices and stuff, but it's considered so balanced because if you drink Coca-Cola, you cannot pick out the individual components. Oh, that's so interesting. Cool. So, fun facts. 
Yeah. Also, right. World Barista Championships? What the heck? I had no idea that existed. Yeah. Either. I know. <laughs> this guy's videos are really interesting. Uh, he gets very into coffee to the point that I thought I liked coffee. This per- He owns a roastery in London. He's very interesting, very calming to watch. Do you like coffee? Or are you just like calming videos? Go check him out. James Hoffman on YouTube. Oh my gosh, I'll definitely do that. I love watching coffee videos, especially about coffee around the world. I think it's so cool how coffee changes. Yes. Culture to culture. He also does a string of videos where he tries like ridiculous coffee beverages uh, (laughs) that are pretty funny. So check it out. It's fun. Heck yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But getting back to where we started. (laughs) Getting back to Oberth. According to an article on the NASA website, I couldn't find this anywhere else, but as a young man, Oberth contracted scarlet fever and was sent to Italy to recover. So what's interesting about this is that is the same thing that Solkovsky contracted, and that's actually what caused Solkovsky to go, that caused him to become hard of hearing. However, from what I understand, is that Oberth had a full recovery. Oh, wow. Yes. So good for him. So while he was in Italy, at the age of 11, his mother gifted him Jules Verne's From the Earth to the Moon and another book by Jules Verne called Around the Moon. Oberth obsessively read them and reread them to the point of memorization. Did you ever do that when you were a kid? Like you had something or a movie that you were a book that you loved so much you read it over and over and over and over again? Harry Potter. Like kind of in the only only the way that kids can do? Yeah. <laughs> My brother and I's was Toy Story, which is not nearly as intellectual as Jules, Jules Verne books. <laughs> I was Harry Potter, Anna. I just wanted to be a witch at Hogwarts so bad. Okay, I do that now. (laughs) (laughs) But, anyway. So, Oberth was captivated with the concept of space travel, and he was convinced that liquid-fueled rockets could be developed. This is really interesting. The year must have been 1905, if Sokoski was 11, because he was born in 1894. Why can't I get this? The year must have been 1905, if Oberth was 11, because the year he was born in 1894. Solkovsky's paper, which described the feasibility of liquid rocket engines, we talked about that earlier, exploration of outer space by means of rocket devices, that had been published in 1903, two years earlier. But interesting, though, is that paper was not widely accepted by the scientific community, so it could be why Oberth didn't know, or I'm also guessing information didn't travel particularly well back then. Yeah. It's probably a combination of it not being really accepted as an important discovery by the scientific community, and... There was no internet or phone. Yeah. Also, the fact that he was convinced that liquid-fueled rockets could be developed at the age of 11? Yeah. What the heck? Yes. That is... Can't even get into that. That yeah. is that incredible. It gets better. Three years later, at the age of 14, Oberth designed what he called a recoil rocket, which would propel itself by expelling exhaust from its base. That's So amazing. he came up with that at the age of 14. That's incredible. Yes, I know. And then in 1912, at the age of 18, Oberth moved to Munich, Germany, and enrolled at the University of Munich. He enrolled to study medicine and become a doctor like his father. However, World War I, which started in July of 1914, interrupted his studies. He ended up being drafted into the Imperial German Army. He ended up being drafted into the Imperial German Army and was assigned to an infantry battalion. He was eventually moved into a medical unit to help in a hospital. And Hannah, do you want to pick it up from here? Yeah, I'd love to. So in the war, he actually got injured. And because of his injury, he got some time off. During this period of rest, he started pursuing his passion for aerospace more. And during this time, he designed a liquid propellant rocket and sent that design to his commanding officer. His commanding officer sent it to the war ministry, but it was rejected. But during this time, he was convinced to go return to physics. So after the war, when he returned to university, to the University of Heidelberg, Obert switched his studies from medicine to physics. So at the university... So he must have also switched universities too. Yes, exactly. So he switched to the University of Heidelberg and decided to pursue a PhD and wanted the topic of his dissertation to be rocket design. That makes sense. Yeah. And the university rejected his thesis in 1922. But Oberth went ahead and found a publisher that would publish it anyways. He was like, I don't care. I really believe in my work. I'm going to go ahead and publish it. And So he got it published, but because it wasn't accepted, he still didn't get a PhD. He just 
decided to go get his work published anyway. But he didn't receive a degree because of it. Exactly. Exactly. Gotcha. And so he went ahead and found an independent publisher. And the German title translates literally to The Rocket into Interplanetary Space, the title of his uh, thesis, which is now a book and not a thesis. Gotcha. And it was basically about how a rocket can achieve a velocity to, to exit Earth's gravitational pull. And like Anna mentioned earlier, the term for this is escape velocity. So this publication got him a lot of attention. And at this time, he wasn't very familiar with Goddard and Solkovsky. So he went on to continue his work. He made more designs. And in a couple years later, in 1929, he published a much longer book. I think it was on the order of 400 and something pages. That Whoa. was, yeah, it's huge. It was, I think it was three or four times the size of his first book, The Rocket into Interplanetary Space. So, mm. yeah, like in those few years, he just like researched a whole bunch more um, and released a new book that was titled Ways to Space Flight. And this one gained him a lot of international recognition and allowed him to get a lot of funding for his experiments. And during this time, so like Anna mentioned earlier, he didn't get a PhD. He actually had a response to why he hadn't defended another dissertation for his PhD. He wrote, from my research I found, he wrote, I refrained from writing another one, thinking to myself, never mind, I will prove that I am able to become a greater scientist than some of you, even without the title of doctor. So from this quote, it's like he he wasn't a fan of the education system back then. Uh, <laughs> he sounds a little bitter. <laughs> it sounds a little bitter. But, I don't blame him. Yeah, I don't blame him either. It's like you put in all your heart and soul into this like 100-page dissertation Oof. and then it's not accepted. Oof. So he continued his work in aerospace. In 1931, Obert launched his first liquid propellant rocket in Berlin, Germany. And then also, sometime in the late 1920s to early 1930s, I couldn't find an agreed-upon year. And actually, Anna and I were talking about this, about the research surrounding Oberth, was that we found a lot of conflicting texts and research articles. Yeah, I'm thinking it has something to do with the fact that it, he lived throughout both World War I and World War II in Germany, where there wasn't necessarily a lot of communication between Germany and other countries. Right, a lot of... A lot of work wasn't being made public. Yes. Yeah, I can see that. So my guess is that, A, it's because this was a really long time ago, and B, that there just wasn't a lot written down or communication because of the wars. Exactly. Yeah, I can see that. So anyways, from some articles said sometime in 1928, some articles said sometime in 1931, Basically, around this time, Obert took take on... Take your pick. Yeah, take your pick. <laughs> Doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, sometime during this time, Obert took on Werner von Braun as a mentee. And for those of you who do not know Werner von Braun, we talk about him in our Saturn V episode. Um, he has made a lot of contributions to aerospace. He, unfortunately, was a part of Nazi Germany. So he came over to the U.S., uh, after this time and contributed significantly to the U.S. military and NASA rocket designs. But because of his Nazi past, it's really hard to put him in a positive light. Yeah, it really spoils a lot of things for me. Yeah, but he definitely had a lot of co significant contributions in aerospace. He did. Yep. He did. So a few years later, in 1938, Oberth joined the Technical University of Vienna, and he became a German citizen in 1940 and transferred to the German Rocket Development Center at Pinemund in 1941. And then at this Rocket Development Center, he worked with Werner von Braun on more research. And then, Anna, do you want to go ahead and pick it up from there? Yeah. While at the German Development Center, Oberth worked with von Braun on developing the V-2 rocket. So the V-2 weighed 27,000 pounds and was capable of carrying warheads at 3,500 miles per hour. This is where it gets a little bit of a bummer. It was used to rain warheads down on Britain, which is absolutely devastating. That is. And it's unfortunate, but not all rocket development was used for space travel. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and that's true actually for a lot of technologies, even stuff we use today. A lot of the development starts out for military purposes and mm-hmm. then gets adapted. Uh, it's really unfortunate that it was used to harm people. So before the end of the war, Oberth left the V-2 project to work on solid propellant anti-aircraft rockets at the German WASAG military organization located near Wittenberg. I didn't know what anti-aircraft meant. I was like, wait, so does it not fly? Yeah. No, it's the other anti. It's the not good anti. Anti-aircraft rockets are essentially missiles designed to take down aircraft. I Again. Had, yeah, I read that a bummer. Yeah, super a bummer. The U.S. actually has these two, so it's not just Germany. Yeah. I also had read that term when I was doing Oberth research, and I was like, anti-aircraft? Anti-aerodynamics? Anti-gravity? Yeah, like, My brain was like, was like, like, what does this mean? I was like, does it sit on the ground? Like, and then I Googled I was like, oh, anti as in take down. Yeah. Take down, I was, yeah. I was like, Super bummer. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh. Oh. Oh, no. <laughs> Darn. Yeah, it's, it's but devastating. Again, moving on. In 1955, Oberth moved to the United States to again work with Von Braun, but this time on the Saturn V rocket, which, as I'm sure you know, carried Collins, Aldrin, and Armstrong to the moon in 1969. He remained in the U.S. for three years until retiring to West Germany in 1958. Oberth continued his work on theoretical studies of rockets well into his retirement, and on December 29, 1989, he passed away in Nuremberg, West Germany, shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And to end this off, I couldn't figure out how to sum this up in an original way, and then I found this quote from Space.com, and it's just such a great quote. Why rewrite something that somebody's already done a great job on? So we'll have the article in our sources. But, although Oberth developed many of his early theories at the same time as American engineer Robert Goddard Goddard and Russian scientist Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, there is no evidence that they relied on one another's work. As such, all three men are regarded as the fathers of rocketry beautiful that's incredible thank you so it brings us into the next point Hannah and i wanted to make unfortunately at this for this episode we did not talk about any women but that doesn't mean we do not acknowledge them at this time any research most women were probably not allowed to do research and if any were it was probably not taken seriously and we really want to champion the work in aerospace done by women, and we will in future episodes, but we also found, you know, the information surrounding these three particular people and their contributions in aerospace to be important, and we wanted to share that. But yeah. Yes. We want yeah, to support women in STEM. Yes, exactly. And so we will, as Hannah said, we will do an episode in the future about women who have supported and contributed to the field of rocketry and aerospace. Yes. Do you want to do sources? Yeah, let's dive into our sources. Do you want to go first? Sure. Okay. So a lot of my sources are from the, a lot of my research comes from the NASA.gov websites for Goddard for solid and liquid field rockets. Um, I also looked at the ESA website, the European Space Agency. Uh, They had some information about solid and liquid field rockets as well. I looked at space.com. I went ahead and read a method of reaching extreme altitudes, which was Goddard's um, book that he wrote. And I also looked at a episode by SciShow Space, super awesome YouTube channel, would highly recommend checking it out. They had a great episode on Goddard. I found a page about Esther, and that page was uh, called goddardmemorial.org, and Esther was Goddard's wife. I found a original patent for the gyroscopes, Goddard's gyroscope design, and that was on the wpi.edu website. Oh, cool. Yeah, super cool. And then some other, there was another website for Werner von Braun, which was Pioneers of Flight. I also looked at uh, Britannica Encyclopedia, and then another website called kiosec.com, and they had, and that website had a lot of good information about Oberth as well. Nice. Yeah. Thanks, Anna. How about you? So for Sokovsky, I found a really interesting biography on the NASA website. And then I found one on Wikipedia, and I found one on Britannica, so encyclopedia Britannica.com. So I kind of used those three to put together the history. 
And then I found a Wikipedia article on Dred Scott. I talked about that a little bit. I found Wikipedia articles on the taters, on ear trumpets. And then I used Encyclopedia Britannica for both Dmitry Mendeleev and the Connect Theory of Gases. Nice. Yeah. And then for Oberth, I have the source for the quote at the beginning. I used a Wikipedia article about what happened in 1894 in the United States. Nice. <laughs> I used the NASA website again to start and get a biography forum. I also found a biography forum on the New Mexico Space Museum Hall of Fame. I found another, I used a Wikipedia article. I found another one on space.com. I found another one on something called spartacuseducational.com. And then I used Wikipedia to learn what anti-aircraft were. But Oberth, yeah, it was kind of hard to piece this together, so I had to rely on a couple different sources. Yeah. Agreed. But yeah, that's all I had. Wonderful. Um, Anna, do you want to tell everyone where they can find us? Yeah, so... If you liked this, if you want to contact us, if you just want to learn a bit, a little bit more about Hannah or I, please go check out our website. You can go to the Contact Us page and shoot us a message. You can also follow us on Instagram at But It Is Rocket Science. You can find us on Twitter at But It Is RS. And you can find us on Facebook at our Facebook page, But It Is Rocket Science. And then you can listen to our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict. I think I'm the only one who uses <laughs> Anywhere you would usually find podcasts. And if you enjoyed us, this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It would mean a lot to us. Stay safe. It's a really rough time in this pandemic. And we hope all of you are staying safe and your families are staying healthy. Yes. And thanks for hanging out with us for a little bit. Yeah. Until next time, Space Cadets. T minus three. T minus three. Two. two one. Liftoff. Lift off.